Welcome to Monticello Podcasts, where we look at various aspects of Monticello, Thomas Jefferson, and the work of the Thomas Jefferson Foundation, which has owned and operated Monticello since 1923. I'm Chad Woolerton, Monticello's webmaster. When we think about the adoption of the Statute of Virginia for Religious Freedom in 1786, we typically focus on the power duo of Thomas Jefferson, its author, and James Madison, its vigorous and adroit shepherd through the Virginia legislature. But there was a third force behind its passage, the dissenters, members of a growing and increasingly powerful community of non-Anglican worshippers who had real worries about state involvement in religion. To learn more about the dissenters and their support of the statute, Monticello's Gary Sailing sat down for a talk with John Ragosta, a recent fellow at our Robert H. Smith International Center for Jefferson Studies, who's been researching the subject for a new book. Well, welcome to this podcast uh, from Monticello on the Statute of Virginia for Religious Freedom. I'm Gary Sandling. I'm the Director of Interpretation and Training at Monticello, so I oversee the training and uh, hiring of our guide staff and a topic that, of course, is very important to us and that we share with visitors and one that was obviously important to Jefferson is on the Statute of Virginia for Religious Freedom. And with us today is John Ragosta. He's a recently minted Ph.D. from the University of Virginia whose research has deeply involved with and concerned with um, the political circumstances in which the Statute of Virginia for Religious Freedom was passed. And I had the pleasure last month of attending a talk that John gave here at the Robert H. Smith uh, International Center for Jefferson Studies. And in his talk, or as an introduction to the talk, John noted that even though Jefferson rightly considers the statute as one of his greatest achievements, and and it's fairly well known, probably to a lot of listeners out there, that James Madison played a role in getting the statute passed. He sort of shepherded it through the, at least the lower house of the General Assembly. Um, John noted neither one of them can really be credit, given credit for it becoming law, and that that credit really goes to the, the political activity of dissenters in Virginia. So uh, it was an extraordinarily interesting and very convincing talk, and Welcome, John. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Gary. Always a pleasure to be at Monticello. Um, maybe we should start out, John, by setting a little context. Tell us who these dissenters are. And maybe, obviously, there had been some, there's religious toleration in Virginia before the revolution, sort of. But sort of. Can you, can you give us some background <laughs> right. to what leads us up to, to this? Well, some people will remember that going into the revolution, the Anglican Church is the established Church of Virginia. It's the official state church. What that means is that Anglican ministers are supported by taxes. Everyone pays the tax. It doesn't matter if you're Presbyterian or Baptist. You're paying a tax to pay for the Anglican ministers. The Anglican ministers are the only ministers who can marry people. The um, Anglican ministers or the Anglican vestries, their lay leadership, has a role in land disputes. They have a role in taking care of orphan children. So they're very much a part of the government political establishment. At the same time, after the mid-1700s, about 1750 on, there is a massive influx of Presbyterians coming largely from Pennsylvania down into the Shenandoah Valley, Germanic, uh, many of them, and Baptists, many of them coming up from the south in North Carolina. 
By the time of the revolution, uh, Thomas Jefferson says at one point the dissenters are two-thirds of the population. Right. That, that's ridiculous. Right. <laughs> Sorry, Tom. It's, it's a little inflated. <laughs> it's a little inflated. Yeah. He says at other times they were about 20%. At one time he says they were about 50%. Um, but the dissenters were probably 20% to maybe as much as 33 or 35% of the population. Mm-hmm. So it's a very substantial share of the population. And they're, they're growing. And they're growing. They're growing very rapidly. And the uh, establishment both the political and religious establishment, the Anglican establishment, because all the great leaders are Anglican, Pendleton, Randolph, Lee, Carey, all of these people who are running the Virginia Revolution are Anglican. Mm -hmm. They very much want the Baptists and the Presbyterians to support the war effort. And do they, I mean, do they support the war effort? What's, what's your research? What, what is your research indicated in terms of, you know, how willing? It seems like, gosh, if these people, as you've pointed out, they're at a disadvantage because of their religion. They are at a disadvantage uh, in terms of taxes. They're in disadvantage. Their, their own churches can't act as corporate entities, exactly. right? So they're at these disadvantages before the revolution. Um, even though they can worship, um, they still have these, these disadvantages. What, um, what's their attitude to... Um, the war. Well, you, you hit on exactly the key point. They can worship. They're tolerated, but they don't really have religious freedom. Mm-hmm. And what's worse, um, before the war, from about 1768 through 1774, there is a huge upswelling of persecution of these people. And there's no other term for it but persecution. Uh, people are, are whipped for mm-hmm. preaching. Baptist ministers are whipped. Uh, people are fined for failing to attend Anglican services. Now, it's interesting. In theory, everyone had to attend Anglican services. Right. But it's only the dissenters who get hauled into court and fined. So they're paying a fee for not going to the Anglican church. Um, where's this happening, John? I mean, I'm sure different places, but can you give us a... Can you tell us where this is going on in Virginia? In particular, it's a good point. In particular, in the Piedmont, where the dissenters are growing and the Anglican establishment mm-hmm. is present. So it's right where the Anglican establishment and the dissenters are hitting together uh, geographically. So Culpeper, for example. Culpeper, Spotsylvania, mm-hmm. uh, Hanover County are areas where there are arrests. And by 1774, over half of the Baptist ministers in Virginia have seen jail time for preaching. Oh, that's now that's now, really... Now, this is extraordinary. Yeah, that's extraordinary. This is extraordinary. And, yeah. and if you're a dissenter, you know that either a minister you know, a minister you've listened to, has been in jail for, as they would say, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. They found this extraordinary. And, and, and so they felt they were persecuted. And here comes this Anglican establishment, again, the Randolphs, the Lees, the, the, the uh, Careys, the right. Pendletons, some of whom participated in the cases that threw these ministers in jail. Pendleton sat on a bench that put right. people in jail. Carey repeatedly sat. Carey right. becomes maybe a little less known to some of the listeners. He becomes the first leader of the Virginia Senate. Very yes. important, Burgess. Right. And should we point out as well, these same men who are part of the Virginia political elite, they're serving in the House of Burgesses, they're sitting on those vestries you mentioned earlier, yes. and they are the justices in those local county yes. courts, right? I mean, they're... Virtually everyone in the 1775 Virginia Convention, which is the critical convention that calls for independence, virtually everyone had been a vestry member at some point in their career, an Anglican vestry member. So the Anglican leadership that had been throwing these people in jail 
there had been beatings, there had been threatening, there had been rocks thrown at uh, dissenting ministers. There are cases where a hornet's nest was thrown into a dissenting minister's, you know, prayer meeting. Uh, what they would view as vicious persecution. These are the people who are now saying, we want you to come and fight for us. So do they? They do. But my contention uh, in my dissertation, hopefully shortly in a book, is that there's really a deal that's made. And the deal is we'll fight, but we expect religious liberty, not just toleration, religious liberty. And there are a series, several hundred petitions that are filed from 1774 through about 1786, primarily from the Baptists and the Presbyterians. And they're very carefully worded because you can't come out. It would be unpatriotic. It would not match Southern honor to say, well, we'll only fight if you give us religious freedom. No one's going to put it in those words. But over and over again, you see things like, well, you know, we don't have religious freedom. We need religious liberty. These things granted, we will always support the state in its battle against Great Britain. These things established, we will always support our brethren in the battle for liberty. And so you really see a period during the war when you would think the Virginia legislature has other things to do right. in which we get piecemeal liberalization. So in 1776, December of 1776, we eliminate the establishment tax, or actually we, we, we postpone it. We, we postpone we, or we, delay it for a we, little while. Right. right. We, we, we um, uh, hold it to the side, but you don't have to pay tax anymore. In 1775, dissenting ministers are for the first time exempted from having to muster with the militia. Anglican ministers had always been exempted, so now they're going to be exempted. Uh, and, and, and this occurs throughout the war. In 1777, we see additional liberalization on the minister's right to be exempted from the militia. 1779, uh, uh, we start to see, um, we actually end the establishment tax. Uh, 1780, we start liberalizing marriage so right. that dissenting ministers in certain circumstances right. can marry people. So what I say is, yes, the dissenters fight. And if you read the early um, histories written by the Baptist and Presbyterian historians of the 19th century, they say accurately that we were in the forefront of the revolution. What they tend not to mention is, well, it was sort of a deal. You right. know, we'll fight. Uh, I've actually found 10 Baptist ministers who were jailed. These are people who were thrown in jail for preaching who fight in the revolution. Now, this That's is remarkable. Fascinating. It's remarkable because these are people in 1775, they win an exemption. They could claim their exemption and say, you know, we don't have to fight. You can't draft us because we're ministers. Ten of them are willing to fight. Uh, why? Well, in 1777, Patrick Henry, the first governor of Virginia, approaches Jeremy Walker, one of the leading Baptist ministers, and says, I want you to go to the Baptists and get them to enlist. We need the Baptists to enlist. Um, and they're particularly interested not only in the Baptists, but the Presbyterians, because the Presbyterians are those frontier riflemen. Daniel Morgan's riflemen at Saratoga are from the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia. Right. Uh, these are men who own rifles and know how to use them. And there's actually references in some of the early debates in 75 and 76 and even 1774 uh, where the Virginia leaders are saying, you know, if we have to fight the British Army, we're going to – those guys with rifles can really shoot um, so they appeal to these people, and these people do turn out that if you – and it's very hard to measure, Gary, because we don't have records that list people's um, 
religion. Yes. Muster rolls and, and other kinds of government records don't necessarily tell you who's a Baptist, who's a president, exactly. et cetera. So to try to figure that out, one of the things I did in my research, I looked not only at ministers, but I looked at counties, mm-hmm. because we do know which counties have a strong Baptist presence, which counties have a strong Presbyterian presence. And we can look at the ministers, because we can identify them. And what you see is that while the Anglican ministry holds more high-ranking positions, mm-hmm. and this makes sense because they were the establishment, they were the, the leaders who, who were part of the hierarchy, part of the uh, gentry. Uh, and so we have, for example, uh, Muhlenberg from the Valley, who's really an Anglican minister, becomes a general. Right. There are Anglican ministers who become colonels and, and high-ranking positions. But what we have is a number of uh, Baptist and Presbyterian ministers who fight either as privates uh, which is even more remarkable. Um, ministers, leaders of their community, they could claim exemption. They're willing to shoulder a gun and fight, or as lieutenants, captains of their companies. In 1777, for example, for the first time, the dissenters are given the opportunity to, to raise their own companies, officered by uh, officers of their own religion. And and so, yeah, you, you, this is all along. You ask, do they fight? Yeah, they fight. And in yeah. fact, arguably, they fight more than the Anglicans. Well, why when they were being thrown in jail? Well, this is, that's interesting because if you think about then if we go back to the political context in the summer of 1776, of course, in June, even before a constitution is formed, the Fifth Virginia Convention will establish very famously a Declaration of Rights. And Article 16 of that declaration you know, grants freedom of conscience, so to speak, to Virginians as a constitutional right. And this is something that suddenly puts the puts the question of establishment um, suddenly out there you know will we have will we have one established church the anglican church as we've had before and there were certainly proponents of that um, the many of the same anglican leaders that you've mentioned um, were staunch supporters of that like edmund pendleton or are we going to have, as the debate went on during the course of the, the war and after, are we going to have several establishments pay your taxes to um, your church of choice so that taxes are proportionally allocated to Baptist or Methodist or, sorry, not Methodist yet, not yet, Baptists or Presbyterians, or there are a few other groups as well. There are some Lutherans, there are some Quakers, Quakers yeah. but really we are talking about Baptists and Presbyterians when we're talking about dissenters here. So all this is kind of put up in the air, and, and Jefferson in 1779 will draft, as part of a revisal of the laws, uh, this bill concerning religious freedom. It fails um, when he's governor to, to get any traction. Um, and then they come back to it in, by 1784-85, this debate sort of hits a, you know, comes to a head. So why do you think at that point, um, and some dissenters, why were they willing to support then the statute for religious freedom after the war? Like, what, what do they hope to gain, I think, out of, out of that support, or in return for that support? Um, well, I, I think they, they hope to gain religious freedom as they understood it. I mean, what's remarkable to me, when I started this research, I hadn't expected this, especially given perhaps our modern perspective. These dissenters have an, a remarkably robust sense of what is religious freedom and separation of church and state, freedom of conscience, freedom of worship. So, and one doesn't want to minimize uh, Madison and Jefferson's contribution because certainly you have this enlightenment thought from people like Jefferson, George Mason, even to some extent Patrick Henry, although uh, he later uh, becomes more of a supporter of the established church. But um, 
this Enlightenment thought from Madison and Jefferson where they write these extraordinary documents. You mentioned Article 16 of the Declaration of Rights, Jefferson's statute for establishing religious freedom, but they couldn't get it through the legislature right. because you had an Anglican establishment who's still saying, no, we like church and state being related. We want taxes to support ministers because we think that's good for the community, and they honestly did. They said this will support virtue and morality. That's right, right. After the war, when we no longer need the dissenters to fight, what you see is a resurgence of the Anglican establishment, and they become stronger. Still, the uh, state legislature is controlled by Anglicans, and so in 1784, you have a proposal to reimpose establishment taxes, and it's more liberal than it was before the war. The notion is, as you say, Gary, that, that uh, we're going to have a tax, and it can go to whatever religion you specify. You, When you pay your tax, you tell the sheriff, well, I want that to go to the uh, Anglican minister. I want it to go to the Presbyterian or Baptist ministers. So that's certainly an improvement, perhaps. But what's and fascinating... S- and some Presbyterians, there were a few Presbyterians, at least initially, some of the Presbyterian leadership, right, said, well, maybe that's a good thing. That, exactly. Right? Uh, in particular, John Blair Smith from Hampton, Sydney, what becomes Ham- Hampton, Sydney College, uh, initially says, you know, maybe this isn't such a bad idea that ministers will be paid by government right. taxes. But once that idea is out there, and it looks like it's going to pass, yes. Patrick Henry is, is supporting it. He's the most popular p- politician in all of Virginia. Uh, there's a vote in the state legislature that passes by significant margin that says 17, November of 1784, we should do this. Madison fights a rear guard action. Yes, right. He slows it down. He gets it delayed till 1785. But it looks like it's going to pass. Henry supports it. The legislature's voted in favor of it. As you say, some of the leading Presbyterians have come out and said, you know, maybe we could live with this. Maybe it's not such a bad idea. Things explode in 1785. Yes. What happens? Well, two things happen. You know, history tells us mostly about Madison's memorial and remonstrance. Perhaps the most eloquent statement of what is religious freedom perhaps ever written. It's an extraordinary document. It is rightfully uh, remembered. The Supreme Court repeatedly has relied on it as a statement of what is religious freedom. But more importantly, the Baptists and the Presbyterians out in the hustings, so to speak, are enraged that having fought this war, having gotten a promise for religious freedom, you're backtracking on us. And the Baptists say, we, it's not just a question of we want to be able to pay taxes to support our own government. We want government out of religion. I, I, one quote, for example, from William Fristow. Now, here's a gentleman. He's a Baptist preacher. He was jailed before the war. This is a guy who suffered in prison, 18th century prison conditions, because he was preaching as a Baptist minister. He comes out and says, when legislatures undertake to pass laws about religion... Religion loses its form, and Christianity is reduced to a system of worldly policy. So they have this notion that if the government gets entangled with religion, it's not a question of that's going to ruin government. That's going to ruin religion. Right. And this is perhaps the key difference between a Jeffersonian view, which is very much based on John Locke's notions of a social compact where government is formed as a contract between the people and, and the government, the people and the king in Locke's view, um, in which we don't want church and state because it's going to interfere with the operation of the state. The Baptists and the Presbyterians are saying, we don't want church and state because it's going to interfere with the church. 
our obligations to God take precedence over those to man in these social compacts. Right? Ex- I mean, this is part of their argument. Exactly. Yeah. And this is, and you use the key term. We have an obligation to God. Keep in mind, we're talking about Baptists. These are people who are willing to go to jail because they believe that baptizing an infant right. was an offense to God. Mm-hmm. Because that's coercing that infant. When that infant becomes an adult, you've somehow coerced that that young adult into becoming a Christian. And God doesn't want any coerced Christianity. God wants a free will offering of uh, true Christian spirit. So these people are, are so focused on this notion of a, a free choice. God only wants a free choice. Our obligation to God is a free choice. And as soon as the government shows up, in any way, shape, or form, you're interfering with people's free choice of religion. So you ask, what do they get out of it? Right. What they get is is this notion that we will be allowed to worship absolutely divorced from any, even the most minuscule form of government coercion, and now we're really worshiping the way God wants. So Jefferson and Madison, and, and again, I, I don't want to minimize the Enlightenment influence, that's important. They have uh, this, this notion of, of natural rights and social compact, and the government ought to stay out of religion because the government has no business being in religion, whereas the Baptists and the Presbyterians have this notion, yeah, government has no business being in religion because you ruin religion when you right. do that. And they really provide the political power that gets the statute adopted. Uh, for example, Madison's Memorial and Remonstrance, one of the things that happens in the summer of 1785, they send this out to all the counties, and they leave room at the bottom for people to sign it. Right. And the notion was you'll sign this and send it into the legislature and say, look, we're, we're opposed to government taxes to support religion. This is worth noting that in these petitions, we've been talking, you know, you've mentioned several times petitions that come to the legislature, and all of these petitions virtually have, many of which you can view online, we maybe yes. can talk about that in a few minutes, but when you look at them, there are these signatures attached, and obviously there's a message with the number of people you have signing them. Yes. So just, as an, just to say, here's the context, and I think John's going to give us an idea of what this looks like in 1785. Well, and this petitioning was extremely important. Arguably, the religious petitions uh, filed by the dissenters during the American Revolution in Virginia is a real change in the nature of approaching your government. Petitioning was very common at this time, but most of the petitions, if you read uh, the early petitions, they're very specific. You know, we, the freeholders of Caroline County, want to change the boundaries of the local parish. And they're very specific and they're very uh, parochial, so to speak. What we have... And these religious petitions are very broad statements of rights, very broad assertions of natural rights, and this is the way things ought to be, and we're petitioning you, our legislatures, to do the right thing. Well, Madison writes the Memorial and Remonstrance, which, again, is an extraordinary document. Uh, There are probably 1,500 signatures, approximately, on the Memorial and Remonstrance. There are over 5,000 signatures on a Baptist petition called the Spirit of the Gospel Petition, and that petition says that it's a violation of the spirit of the gospel of Jesus Christ to have any government interference in religion. Now, 5,000 signatures, keep in mind that's probably almost exclusively white males. Right, right. This is a very significant group of petitioners in 1785. When you think about that the the 
the white population of Virginia is about 350. Probably 300. Yeah, it's probably a bit high. Yeah, maybe 350,000. And and so you take out the children, you take out the women. You're talking about a very substantial number of uh, share of the population signing these petitions. Mm -hmm. And they are weighted toward the western part of the state. I mean, if you look at the voting patterns on Jefferson's Statute for Religious Freedom, the Shenandoah Valley and the Piedmont region carry the statute. Um, and carry the defeat of the general assessment, the the state tax for all religion. Um, but so yeah, this petitioning uh, it was a remarkably viable political technique. Um, and what you know, one of the important conclusions of my book is. Before the war, these are people who are marginalized politically. Mm-hmm. There are virtually no dissenters in the legislature. There are a few. Uh, they cannot serve on vestries. Vestries are Anglican vestries, and they have a, both a political and a religious function. You must be married in an Anglican church. You must be baptized in an Anglican church. You must pay Anglican taxes. Uh, dissenters are being jailed and beat up for preaching without licenses, which they viewed um, applying for a license as a violation of their obligation to God to some extent. This is what got them into trouble, this is what right? Got them I mean, in they, trouble. they wouldn't get a, they could get a license, but they wouldn't get a license. Uh, the so Baptists was, in particular. Yeah. Although there are press, but there are people with licenses who also who get also in trouble, were persecu- okay. also persecuted. Sure, sure. But but uh, the point is before the war these are people who are politically marginalized, politically disenfranchised. Um, technically they are voting, but but they really don't have uh, political influence. By the end of the war, these are people who who are asserting their political rights and who, in a uh, brash political campaign, uh, forced through Jefferson's Statute for Religious Freedom. In fact, the Baptists in 1784 organized a general committee of Baptist um, churches, and it's interesting, up to that point there had been Baptist associations – up to that point, the Baptist associations were basically doctrinal. Mm-hmm. That you know, we're going to have an association. We'll get together and talk about a Baptist creed. Should we should we ascribe to the Westminster Convention? And they never did because the Baptists had an independent streak. But in 1784, they form a general committee which has a uh, stated political purpose. We're going to organize to oppose government interference in religion. Um, and they're effective at it. So these people who had been disenfranchised politically now are very much part of the polity. And and the republicanization of Virginia occurs through this process. Um, a lot of talk by historians that the process in America was republicanized in the 1740s and 1750s, and that's what led to the revolution. I don't really believe that. At the time of the revolution, the legislature is all Anglican. The Anglicans are refusing to pass laws granting religious freedom. They still have toleration. They're still requiring licenses. They're still jailing people. Um, if, if you wanted to be anybody, uh, you had to be Anglican. As I said, the Virginia Convention, virtually every member had been a member of the vestry. But that all changes. It does show how the how the polit that that the political ideals of the revolution how they're realized by ordinary let's say everyday people and how they recognizing that there are certain rights that they have are going to demand them and organize in ways that are certainly not on the scale and certainly not as common as you see around this issue right, right after the war and and the people demand it and to their credit the Anglican establishment makes a choice 
They yes. didn't have to do this. Uh, Edmund Pendleton, uh, Robert Carter Nicholas, uh, Archibald Carey. I mean, Archibald Carey is a great character. I mean, uh, apparently, by all accounts, a fairly persnickety fellow. A somewhat irascible man. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. He, he, is, uh, he threatens to um, uh, kill Patrick Henry with a dagger uh, because there was talk about when, when uh, Virginia faced... debate. Right. Yeah. When Virginia faced an emergency during the war, they were going to give Patrick Henry basically dictatorial powers for a short period of time. And, and Archibald Carey says the day that happens, the day he tastes my steel. So here's, as you say, an irascible fellow. He is put in charge of gathering supplies and troops in the middle district of Virginia. Yes, yes. So he makes a decision. He says, you know, we need the Baptists. We need the Presbyterians. And as much as I support the Anglican Church, he becomes a member of the uh, initial convention in 1784 that Mm-hmm. forms the Protestant Episcopal Church in the United States when when the Episcopal Church in the United States separates from the Anglican Church in England. So he is a dedicated Anglican, a dedicated Episcopalian, but he says, you know, the revolution's more important. And and so we, um, you know, both sides are making a choice. We, the Anglican establishment, choose to grant religious liberty because we need these people to support what's a more important battle of the revolution. Now, they try to take it back when the war's done. Right. You know, they, 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 they say, right. okay, well, we won the revolution. Let's see if we can get back to having establishment taxes. But they made a choice. If we have to choose between one or the other, political liberty is going to be our gravamen, and we're willing to grant religious liberty if that's what it takes to get political liberty. And it's worth noting that the Church of England in America, the Anglican or then the Episcopal Church, really isn't disestablished at law until – the statute is really passed. And even then, there's continued debate about the vest, who controls the land that the church had right. once owned. I mean, that this, even in 1786, it's not the end of this dispute. It would go on right down to the early 19th century. Yes. We continue to have battles, but I think you're right. Uh, people people uh, date disestablishment to different dates. But it seems yes. to me 1786 is really the appropriate time because – even though we had eliminated the establishment taxes, the Anglican Church, the Episcopal Church after 1784, still has a special relationship with the state. Yes. Um, the by law, the mode of worship was specified. The, the the law specified you use the Book of Common Prayer. The law specified, for example, back in the colonial era, that you prayed for the king, and then that was changed to you pray for the Congress in the state of Virginia. You know, right. the Commonwealth of Virginia. Excuse right. me. Um, so there's still this special relationship that's going on. Really, not until 1785 do we have complete liberalization of marriage, uh, so that dissenters can marry as they please, and and in in fact, there's actually still some control in 1785. They didn't like itinerants, which were at right. that point primarily Methodists, um, and, and they didn't want itinerants marrying people. Uh, so, yeah, you still have this church-state relationship. But by 1786, when the Jefferson Statute for Establishing Religious Freedom is adopted, it becomes clear that all of this has to go. And you still have battles, and there are still issues of Sunday closing laws, and there are still questions of who owns the property that the church bought back during the colonial era. But really, it's uh, it's all over. You know, those are those are fringe battles um, that that disappear relatively quickly. The vestries are cleared up then almost immediately. In 1786, the vestries are divested from all civil authority, and you turn it over to a um, 
I forget the term, surveyor of the poor. That wasn't the right term, but they overseer. Overseer. They, overseer they, the yeah, poor. The, the counties were given civil authority to yes. take care of poor and to raise poor taxes, which used to be the church. Right. You know, assessed poor taxes and took care of poor. So I think 1786 and Jefferson statute is is the critical period. But we've we've tended to forget that it's Enlightenment thinking that drafts those remarkable words, but it's religious evangelists who insist that that's the way the government ought to be run uh, and keeping its nose completely out of religion. And that's how the statute gets adopted. So we should also point out maybe let's let's take a let's pull the stick back so to speak and and look at all of this happens before there's uh, the current U.S. Constitution. All of this happens before um, the Bill of Rights and the First Amendment and the as it's now called the Establishment Clause. All of this was a done deal before that debate takes place, um, and yet it serves as an influence obviously on. Um, the Bill of Rights. The, of course, every state was entitled to have whatever uh, arrangement or establishment it wished to have in religion um, at the time of the Revolution. Right. Some states have none. Some states keep a state. Massachusetts most famously would keep one into the 1830s. Um, and yet Jefferson statute, as you mentioned in your talk, you had started to do a little research on, well, when does the statute become held up as um, uh, something influential or, or worthy of of emulation or, or heralded in some degree as part of our revolutionary ideals um, in America. Mm-hmm. And, and then obviously so before um, the Reynolds decision, uh, you know, what's it's in, why does it, how is it recognized, I guess, to posterity mm-hmm. in the first, let's say, the first 50, 60 years after it was passed in Virginia? Well, this is a very important question now of constitutional law. Yes. Because you mentioned the Reynolds decision in 1879. It was actually a polygamy decision. It was the original decision against polygamy in Utah, uh, the territory of Utah at the time. Um, And in that decision, the Supreme Court says emphatically, if you want to understand religious freedom, if you want to understand the First Amendment, look at Jefferson's statute for establishing religious freedom. Look at Madison's memorial and remonstrance. And the Supreme Court repeats that over and over again well into the 20th century. And, And today in the 21st century, the Supreme Court says the gravamen of religious freedom, the the bedrock, the foundation, they sometimes use the term foundation of the First Amendment, is Jefferson's statute in Madison's Memorial and Remonstrance. A number of modern scholars have said, why? why where that's, do you get that? That's right. That's kind of come under some, uh, some scrutiny. Because, scrutiny. because after all, you know, Jefferson's, Jefferson's statutes passed in 1786, at the time, 11 of the 13 states still have some establishment of religion. Massachusetts has a fully established religion, so to speak, but... Um, Almost all of the states, Rhode Island being the other exception, have some clause in their constitution that requires that you be a Christian to hold office, requires that you um, be a Christian to vote, perhaps. Many of them require that you be a Protestant Christian. Right, Catholics some are more are specific, excluded. only Protestants, but, right? You know, so 11 of the 13 states have some form of religious restriction. So why is it that we should look to Virginia and Jefferson's statute rather than the much more restrictive, uh, much more um, entwined state and church relationships in these other 11 new states? I think the Supreme Court was right in 1879, and, and this is an issue I've just begun to research, uh, and, and as far as I can tell, there hasn't been a lot of research. But what's interesting is when you look at the debates over religious freedom – from 18, I'm sorry, 1786 to 1879. Jefferson's statute and Madison's memorial and remonstrance 
are talked about. They're reprinted in the newspaper. There will be a debate going on in Texas over Sunday closing laws or a debate up in upstate New York about what we should do with the Sunday mails. And the local newspaper would say, well, you know, we need to remember what James Madison said about freedom of religion. And and that's repeated. That's interesting. Um, When Madison dies, when Jefferson dies, there are eulogies. As we all know, Jefferson's tombstone, he says, I want to be remembered for three things. The Declaration of Independence, the Statute for Establishing Religious Freedom, and the University of Virginia. People around the country actually remembered that. When he dies, eulogies, oftentimes there would be somebody stand up and and read the Statute for Religious Freedom. I was struck, oftentimes they wouldn't read the Declaration of Independence, but they'd read the Statute for Religious Freedom. Uh, If you read early American histories written in the early 19th century, Bancroft's, which is is one of the most famous, one of the uh, most heavily published histories, Bancroft says, during the Revolution, religious freedom was established. Look at Jefferson's Statute for Religious Freedom. Right. This is Charles Bancroft's his, uh, George, George Bancroft, 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 sorry, Bancroft. George Bancroft's history of the United States, right. okay. which is is right. you know at the time considered the seminal early history. It's very influential. It's very influential. It's very influential. Yeah. It's very influential. Okay. So my my premise is, and it, it's it's at this point it's somewhere between a premise and a strong hunch, but I've begun the research on this is that the reason the Supreme Court says in 1879 that, well, of course you look at Jefferson's statute and Madison's memorial and remonstrance, is that's what everybody who was a 19th century American understood. And they understood it was aspirational because they understood that many Mm -hmm. of the other states still had church-state relationships. They understood that we did not have perfect religious freedom in every one of the states because, as you point out, the Constitution in the early 19th century doesn't restrict states from interfering. The First Amendment doesn't apply to state laws. It only applies to federal laws. That changes then after the Civil War and and into the 20th century. So people understood that the states could restrict religious freedom, but think of it in this sense. If you asked an educated 19th century American if you came from Europe and you said, explain to me this American notion of religious freedom. Yes, yes. I have a strong suspicion people would say, read Jefferson's statute, read Madison's memorial and remonstrance. Um, and, and again, they knew it was aspirational. They knew we haven't really done that. But that's why when these educated men, presumably in 1879, sitting on the Supreme Court, they had grown up reading the newspapers, reading the histories, being taught in school. Uh, you know, you want to understand religious freedom? Don't look at Massachusetts. They understood that Massachusetts was backwards when it came to religious freedom. Look at what Virginia did. Look at what Rhode Island did. And Rhode Island also has this very robust notion of religious freedom. So, um, you know, the the whole question when you look at the history of the Constitution or the history of, of one of these provisions, we don't need to rely on history. I mean, the, the Supreme Court today, if they so choose, can simply say, this is how we are, we are going to interpret religious, religious freedom today. This is what we think the First Amendment means. This is what we're going to say it means. But if we care about what the founders meant by these terms, you can always find a founder who says one thing or another. You can always find a founder. They don't ever speak with one th- voice. They don't speak with one voice. Right. You can find a founder. Patrick Henry supported an establishment tax. Okay? Absolutely. And, and he's an important founder. Uh, Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, uh, these are people who support more restrictive notions of church-state relationships. So the question is not, can you find a founder who said this or that? The question is, are there particular statements that we ought to view as more emblematic, more iconic, more foundational? Mm -hmm. And I I think the evidence is going to show that 
to the 19th century Americans who inherit the revolution, to use Joyce Appleby's term, yes. they understood Jefferson's statute as that's what we really should do when it comes to religious freedom. We may not be doing it in every case, right. but that's really the right So notion. like the Declaration, it serves exactly. as something that, that holds out before posterity from, from the revolutionary era's point of view yeah. to posterity. Here's something yeah. to which to realize fully this notion of liberty. Right. This and, is and, what we you should aspire yeah. the, to. The, the Declaration is a perfect example. I mean, the Declaration declares all men are created equal. We know there's slavery. We know that all men are not created equal. We know right. women's They weren't rights. naive about this. They, they weren't right. naive about it. They understood that that conflicted, and, and they, they did backflips intellectually to try to explain why the Declaration doesn't apply. But, but they knew that as an aspirational basis, they needed to make progress in all of these areas. Actually, you know, mentally, women's rights was, was almost behind uh, African-American rights mm -hmm. for for many of these people. But they knew uh, that when they declared all men are created equal, uh, that that was an aspirational notion of how the world should be. They understood that Jefferson's statute for religious freedom, Madison's moral remonstrance, is the way that government and church ought to interact, which is to say they ought to be wholly separate. And as right. Jefferson says in 1803, to uh, a wall of separation. Yes. And the, Dan the letter to the Danbury, the Danbury Baptist, Baptist Association. A wall of separation. Right. But, but that, while he uses that term in 1802, that concept is very strongly brought to us by the dissenters during the American Revolution. And I think that's what's so interesting about your research in this question, John, is that it has been, you know, it's very frequently a subject to say, here's this here's this aspirational document in a way, and, and here's the, the influence of this enlightenment thinking and the importance of freedom of conscience. But here we see the intersection of a group of people who share that aspiration for completely different reasons, yet they're willing to support each other, both in the war and then subsequently, as you point out, the Anglicans are willing to give ground on this because they realize that for this society to, to, to function in, in, in a way, in a, in a stable um, in, a, in a stable, peaceable way, that these kinds of uh, sacrifices and then compromises have to be made to to sort of to accommodate all these different viewpoints. Right, and and you know this is the one area where I might criticize the current court's view on uh, religious freedom to some extent. That um, certainly the the deal that was made, and I think that's an appropriate term, the deal that was made for religious freedom in Virginia during the American Revolution, the dissenters contemplated a very strict separation of church and state. I think the Supreme Court's been, been um, correct on that from a historic perspective. Again, you can have any view you want from a, a modern philosophical perspective. But the dissenters also probably had a more robust sense of freedom of worship than the uh, Supreme Court has. And, and so you really have these dual notions. And, and mm -hmm. the First Amendment really has two clauses. It has the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause. And the dissenters, uh, oftentimes uh, the court has said, or constitutional scholars have said, there's a tension between these two clauses. I don't think there was any tension to the dissenters who brought us religious freedom. I thought the first clause means the government stays the heck out of this. You leave us mm -hmm. alone. You don't come anywhere near religion. The second clause means when it comes to religion, we get to do our thing and the state will not interfere. And that has a lot of modern implications, whether it comes to um, Muslim women wearing headscarves when that's against a, a uh, dress code in the military or in a school, perhaps, um, whether it comes from uh, your right to speak publicly, uh, right to preach publicly. Absolutely. The dissenters would have insisted upon all of those things. At the same time, I think they would have been very supportive of the modern court's view of a strict wall of separation.
that is very interesting, and we certainly look forward to your book and to your researches going past 1786. I find this very fascinating and I think very relevant, obviously, to a number of topics that are part of the political and cultural discussion in this country today. Thank you so much for being here, John. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Gary.